Good morning. Let's pray. Gracious God, be with us in this moment. The Lord guide our time together as we spend time in your word, continuing to desire to be more and more like Christ. Be with us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. My topic or title uh, for which I want to frame our morning together is a foolishness to the Greeks. Foolishness to the Greeks. I thought it was pretty clever. I don't know if you think it's that clever, but (laughs) that's actually uh, Hellenica, which means Greek in Greek. It's just clever to me, I guess. It's fine. Uh, (laughs) But foolishness to the Greeks. I borrowed the title um, which I'm sure the author Leslie Newbegin got the title of their book from this text. But I just think that within that phrasing of itself is so much, I think, powerful thought and wisdom. So anyway, I have been in ministry for about 18 years at this point in my life. And 13 of those 18 years have been spent serving covenant churches. And so even though I love my Presbyterian background and heritage and know that true salvation comes through the Presbyterian church, um, the reality for me is that, especially vocationally, I I just resonate more with the covenant church um, and covenant ministry. And one of the things that I was drawn to as it pertains to the covenant denomination um, was this immigrant story. The, the immigrant story of the covenant church and all the different things that they overcame to be this amazing denomination that I hold dear. Um, and though the African-American journey um, here is not an immigrant story. For me, there was somewhat of a connection between the, the ability to rise through and overcome struggle and adversity to establish some level of success, if you want to call it success. Um, and I'll share a little bit more about that um, later on in the text in this today. But the reason why I bring it up and it's actually connected to the text to some degree for me as well is that in, in all of the years of serving covenant churches, um, there's also been like this point of struggle um, or this, this point of pain. Like I've had some really tough times in some covenant churches um, And mostly around the denomination's uh, desire to be this multi-ethnic mosaic. If you, again, if you follow denomination, you hear, you know, like our kind of six strategies. And one of them is we talk about being this multi-ethnic mosaic. And and a lot of what I've found is there are a lot of churches who were like kind of early adapters of this multi-ethnic mosaic. And the struggle with that came that there was a desire 
to, to be this beautiful multi-ethnic picture and this beautiful multi-ethnic example. And we kind of talk about how as a denomination, we're probably one of the fastest growing multi-ethnic churches in the U.S. But underneath all of that is the reality that in the process, a lot of folks get hurt. Because sometimes we want to jump to the kind of end of the story and skip over the hard work that it takes to maintain it. And so there have been times, uh, me and my wife, where it was, yes, you want to be multi-ethnic? Let's bring in some black folks, and now we're good. And what happens with that is oftentimes the, the work, the groundwork that needs to be done to to make it a place where everybody can thrive um, isn't done or done very well. And, 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 and there's a particular part of the year that's most painful for me. And I'm just being transparent with you. I'm taking a little pastoral privilege. Um, but Martin Luther King Day and Black History Month tend to be some of the most painful times for me. And here's why. Oftentimes, I have found that now, 50 years after his death, that we find this, like, comfort, like, it's cool to quote Dr. King, right? We talk about unity, I have a dream, all of these different things. And it's like the cool thing to do, especially like on his birthday. And then in Black History Month, you know, we do the Black History Month programs, you know, it becomes safe to talk about it then. But then after February, once March 1st hits, we kind of go back to business as usual. And so the thing that I often struggle with then is like, have we really arrived? Have we really grown if it's only safe to talk about race and the civil rights movement and all these different things and really lift up Dr. King like on these specific days? And one of the, and I used to get in trouble because like I would do stuff like I would quote Dr. King in April. <laughs> Oh my gosh. And then I would get like pushback from folks because I was like being a rabble rouser. And when I think about Dr. King for me, like one of the things that keeps me in adversity was because like his message, no matter how much he went through, never changed. Right? And so the struggle for me then becomes... When we talk about, and I'm not necessarily specifically talking about us here, but just in general, my struggle becomes our desire for the appearance of something without the work that it takes to make it sustainable, to make it real, and to make it authentic. And I think the difference 
and the next level that we can go to as a church, as a denomination, is to wade through the difficult waters and wade through the pain and wade through the shame in order to make our lived experience real. And in a very real way, I believe that's a lot of what Paul was seeing in the Corinthian church. Because the Corinthian church was made up of ex-slaves and free men and the people who weren't the top folks in society. And so much like the immigrant story of the Swedish church, the first generation Swedes were not, for the most part, rich, right? They, they were immigrants who struggled, especially, and I'll talk a little bit later about Swede Hollow. If you're familiar with Swede Hollow in St. Paul, Minnesota, where are my Minnesota folks at? Then you know a little bit about how difficult it was for that first generation. Well, brothers and sisters, what I think tends to happen is that the struggle is so painful that the things that we work through and work past are so hard that the minute that we achieve some level of success, we want to stay in that place and forget where we came from. The church in Corinth was doing the same thing. They seem to have forgotten where they came from. The people who made up Corinth were not government officials. They were not military officials. They weren't uh, philosophical uh, geniuses. They were just kind of like regular everyday people who, when they encountered Paul, responded to the message of the cross. But somewhere along the way, the cross was no longer in the forefront. And what began to draw them was the beautiful philosophical speech of the folks that they were following. When you look at chapter 1, verse 18 and 19, it says this, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. The first thing that Paul does in these first two uh, verses is let us know that how we perceive the message of the cross shapes who we are. Because either as you respond to the message of the cross, you embrace it and are entering into a relationship of salvation where you are in the process of being saved by God. Or you reject it and you are perishing. Paul is starting off this part of the letter with a very poignant reminder that if you don't accept the cross, the suffering, the shame, then you are rejecting the power of God to save. Which one are you? Which one are you? Are you are are you drawn to the message 
of the cross and everything that it, it, it encapsulates? Or does somehow considering what the cross stands for and represents turn you away? Or do you not think about it? He goes on to say, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligences of the intelligent, I will frustrate. And then in verse 20, he says, where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Because part of what we are called to as believers doesn't make sense. We believe that a man walked on water. That doesn't make sense. We believe that he he raised the sick girl from the dead, a girl who had died. Right. We 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 think about John 11, the story of Lazarus and how he raised Lazarus from the dead, Lazarus who had been for three days. And science will tell you how fast our bodies start decomposing. And it wasn't no formaldehyde and no, uh, what do you call the folks? Uh, the medical examiners or whatever that like take all the organs. There's kids in here, I'm sorry. But it's the, the medical examination process that helps slow down the decomposition, right? And so he raised this man from the dead who had been dead for three years. You get what I'm saying? Like it's, <laughs> when we think about the miracles and the ministry of Jesus, it doesn't make a lot of sense. That God came to earth in the form of a baby through a virgin. I stopped there. We all know the rest, right? Like it doesn't make sense. And so what, what what Paul was was trying to tell was trying to get the Corinthian church to understand, hey, listen, for some reason you're rejecting the message of the cross, you are being drawn to wisdom all of a sudden, but the things that brought us to faith aren't conventional wisdom. And it's this reality. That our human experience makes us miss the divine wisdom of the cross. And the thing is, we don't have to take it personal. We don't have to feel attacked because the reality is that all of us, if we're really honest, probably at some point in our life or some point in our walk, struggle with some aspect of what we're being called to believe. And so it's not a it's not a reason to feel shame or reason to, to be upset. It's just the reality of the human experience, because what we are taught scientifically, what we are taught logically, what we learn day to day often combats what Scripture tells us. And the reality is, I think it is in that challenge that we find the beauty of the cross in and of itself. Because if the cross was easy, if following the Lord was easy, everybody would do it. But we're, we're all faced with a choice. And, you, and, and we can see even in our culture, like how much we try to clean up the cross. 
If I look at the cross at the back of our sanctuary, it's finished. It's perfectly symmetric. But you think the Roman soldiers took time to polish and finish the cross before they put Jesus on it? We go to the jewelry stores and we can find the diamond studded crosses or the gold crosses. Or if you were a poor kid from the south side like me, it was gold plated. But the, but the song doesn't say, oh, I cherish the diamond studded cross. It doesn't say I cherish the new finished cross. No, the song says on a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, the symbol of suffering and shame. And I love that old cross where the dearest and best of a word of lost sinners was slain. The cross, brothers and sisters, was rugged and painful and ugly. It was a symbol of shame. And our king, our Lord, suffered that cross. And if we attempt to live a faith that focuses only on the triumph of resurrection, then we are missing the most important part of the journey, which is why Paul talks about preaching Christ crucified. Because the reality for us is that if we try to get past the crucifixion of what it means to be believers, then we're missing out on the richest aspect of what God is calling us to. And part of the struggle that we'll always have in the church is fighting our own desire to be comfortable. Fighting our own desire to be safe. Fighting our own desire for things to be easy. But brothers and sisters, there's a reason that the cross came before the resurrection. And we often forget that it wasn't just from the cross to the resurrection, but Jesus had to go through hell Before he was resurrected. And so, brothers and sisters, if our relationship with Christ doesn't take us through hell, how do we expect to live into the glory of the triumph? And that doesn't make sense. That's why the cross is foolishness to the Greeks. The Greeks who were so wrapped up in their wise philosophy that as they were trying to figure out the meaning behind this cross, that they couldn't, they couldn't make it make sense. And, and, and because it didn't make sense, they couldn't connect. So it, it was full, it was literal foolishness to the Greeks. And I believe when most of us have conversations, and this, this may be just my soul, but I, I, I have conversations all the time when folks want me to make sense of scripture and why I believe. I can, I can, I can try to make it make sense. But ultimately, we have to recognize that part of our ability to even respond to the message of the gospel is the work of the Holy Spirit. And so most oftentimes my prayer for people is praying that they respond to the Holy Spirit that is working. Because if it doesn't make sense, 
I can't make it make sense. Does it make sense? (laughs) And so it was foolishness to the Greeks, but it was a stumbling block to the Jews because the Jews were looking for signs. And the problem is that the Jews historically always needed some sign that God was with them, right? They, they needed signs from Moses. They needed signs from the kings. Look, how do we know that you are with us? And Paul is saying that we've gotten past signs. It's time for faith. And so we are being called to bear our crosses that are shameful, that are painful, that are ugly. We are called to bear crosses, crosses that were reserved for criminals and murderers and traitors and enemies of the state. But our Savior went through the cross. We must go through the cross too. So he goes on to say in verse 26, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. So that no one may boast before him. So I mentioned earlier, me and my wife served at a church in Minnesota in St. Paul. And we were about a mile away from an area called Sweet Hollow. And by the time we got there, Squee Hollow was this beautiful park. You go for walks. They would do art shows. They would do all these really cool things. Bands. It's a really, really, really beautiful place. But the history of Squee Hollow was not as beautiful as it was. Because for a lot of the first generation immigrants that settled in St. Paul, who couldn't afford houses, who couldn't afford to live in the neighborhoods they eventually moved to, started in Sweet Hollow. And Sweet Hollow was a dump. Sweet Hollow was literally where the folks who lived on the top of the hill dumped trash and garbage feces, all kind of stuff. And people lived The first-generation Swedes lived in that. Most of the houses that they lived in were built with the scraps and the junk that people threw into Sweet Hollow. There There was no electricity. There was no plumbing. There was outhouses. The conditions were were less than livable. It was eventually condemned as a slum in about 1954. But these resilient Swedes, as a community gathered together and pulled money together and and began to work their way out of the hollow, began to move into the neighborhoods and and eventually built one of the first covenant churches in our denomination. It pre 
uh, what, is it, what is it? It was before. It predated the domination. I always like lose words up here. I'm, it predated the denomination. And it was this beautiful story of immigrant folks. Folks who were looked down upon. Folks who were frowned upon. Folks who were looked at as less than. Working their way up. And then they build this beautiful church. And they begin to worship together and things of that nature. And I think the first sign in the history of that church's movement that they had begun to forget where they came from was in the 50s when some of the first African-Americans started coming to the church. Now, you would think that folks who had been immigrants, who had been the kind of downtrodden, who had been on the bottom total pole of society, would maybe have some compassion. And I guess to some degree they did. Because they allowed the black folks to worship. But they had to sit in the balcony. And that balcony became affectionately known as N-word heaven. And those were the stories that we heard when we started serving it. That there was this pride in that. To me, that was one of the first times of forgetting where you came from. But brothers and sisters, don't we, don't we all kind of do that to some degree? We, we work to get better jobs, to make more money, to move into better neighborhoods and bigger houses and buy better cars. We, we work hard to, 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 to get out of the neighborhoods, some of us, that we grew up in. Like, I remember growing up on the, on, on the south side of Chicago, and my, my, my nucleus neighborhood was safe because of the work that my dad had done in the community. But there was a lot of stuff happening. And, and, and I remember the sense of, sense of pride and almost arrogance that I felt when I went away to college and I came back. And I'm like, hmm. And then college led to grad school and I made my way to the north side and made my way to St. Paul and I made my way to the suburbs of Kent, Washington. And I had forgotten to some degree my own story. Brothers and sisters, when we forget where we come from, when we forget our stories of pain, when we forget our immigrant stories, when we forget, like Paul is reminding Corinthians, he says in 26, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Because right now you guys are wooing and, 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 and dwelling on these philosophers, but when you were called, you were an ex-slave. How soon we forget where we come from. And I think that we have to figure out that balance between remembering and looking forward. 
Because if we look forward without remembrance, then our picture of what's to come is incomplete. Paul is calling folks back into relationship with Christ and centered around where it was started. It was started at the sacrifice on the cross. I believe that the message to the church is that because we are called to remember the cross, to remember that old rugged cross, that as easy as it can be to turn away from the shame, that we should really be motivated by the shame. That we should be motivated by the suffering. We should be motivated by the challenge. I don't think it's a coincidence that the church movement in and of itself grew the most when the church was under pressure. And so even when people talk about the church is dying, all the church is dying, it's not dying everywhere. The church is thriving the most in places where it's not okay to be the church. The church is thriving the most in the places where you can't carry Bibles. Where you can't get physically baptized and dipped in water. Where your salvation is a forcible decision that you have to make because you can't profess the name of the Lord out loud. I wonder... If part of our lack of growth, and I'm even thinking about our denomination, as we think about everything that's happening in our denomination right now, and all the conversations and all the fighting, is if we've lost our connection to our immigrant story. We've lost our connection to suffering. We've lost our connection to, we've lost the fact that there was a point where, 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 where folks, the, the, the people who built our churches couldn't even afford houses. The, the, the first covenant church in Minneapolis that was started by August Schoolsburg when they were deciding to build that building, was started with $5,000 that was gathered together by thousands of poor Swedish folks. And that church still stands today. Because we stand on the backs and the stories of our immigrant Swedish brothers and sisters who had nothing and made something out of nothing through the power of God and the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And just like Paul was calling the church to remember where they came from and remember the cross, I believe that God is calling our church to remember where we came from, remember the cross, remember the suffering of how we started. Because we'll get to where God is calling us through focusing on the cross and the suffering and not having false senses of security in what we've accomplished. 
Last thing is this. It is because of him that you are in Christ who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. Brothers and sisters, we can find all kind of things to find pride in. We can find all kind of things to lift up. But our pride should come in identifying with Christ and the work on the cross. When we, when we, when we find ourselves struggling, are we focused on the cross? When we find ourselves in moments where we can't decide what direction we should be going in, are we focused on the cross? When we find ourselves too geared toward ease, comfort, bring it back to the cross. Because it's in the cross that we find true wisdom, God's wisdom. It's in the cross that we find redemption. It's in the cross that we find salvation. It's in the cross that we find direction. And it's in the midst of the suffering and the shame of the cross that we find triumph. Paul is calling the church back. Because somewhere along the way, they were infatuated with things other And the central thing is the cross of a suffering Savior. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, God, we, um, I think sometimes, Lord, it can be really easy to bask in the comfort and the joy of all of the good things that are happening around us. But the Lord, my prayer for us is that in the midst of the success, the Lord, we don't forget our origin story, our immigrant story, where we came from, that no amount of success causes us to disconnect from the message of the cross. The cross that was a symbol of suffering, the cross that was a symbol of shame, the Lord, the cross that we need to allow to be the forefront of everything we do. Like Paul who preached Christ crucified, the Lord, let us lead crucified lives so that we in our successes and our triumphs Don't begin to oppress others. Let the reminder of our immigrant story always be a place of of, of pride that leads us to compassion and not arrogance. That leads us to unity and not division. That leads us to mission and not maintenance. The Lord, we know that that cross was old and rugged. So remind us that not only did our Lord and Savior have to deal with the nails and the crowns and thorns, 
but there were some splinters and some wooden pieces stuck to his back. We lift these things up before you, knowing that ultimately we do find victory, but that victory goes through the cross. And so we are joyful because the cross is our redemption. The cross is our salvation. The cross is our wisdom. And let us lead lives of faith. Centered around the divine wisdom of the cross. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.